Late last year, a guy by the name of Mark Levovich, New York Times reporter, did a interview with the TV personality Larry King. Okay, you know, fiery, got a lot of things going. Larry King is 82 years old. He's been married eight times to seven different women. And he describes himself as emphatically non-religious. And Larry King is facing a pretty serious dilemma. He is deathly afraid of death. In fact, he he's doing everything he can to avoid it. Uh, he does not believe that his life story will end well if he winds up in the ground. And so what he's doing is he's he's taking four growth hormones every single day. Uh, he he's very worried about this. Um, he doesn't know exactly what will happen to him. It's not that he hasn't heard the gospel. Pastors I know have actually shared Christ with him, but he does not know what to do. Uh, so what he is actually does he's done uh, in the event that he does die, like if he's like going to be the exception to the rule at 100 percent, he has actually made arrangements for his body to be frozen. Okay, the uh, the whole cryonics approach, and this is kind of what he's thinking that this uh, this will somehow perhaps help him, and they figure out whatever killed him, they figure out some uh, some sort of resolution to that. Now he actually later on uh, told Mark that he actually thinks that all the cryonics folks are all nuts, using his words, but he said this at least he thinks if he's frozen, if he should die, that he'll have a shred of hope. And he went on to say, all the other people have no hope. Is that right? When you die, is there really no hope? Is Larry King right? Well, I want you to think about this. And we're going to tackle this subject head on this morning. When Paul wrote the book of First Thessalonians, he had sent Timothy to go and to find out how these new believers were doing. And when Timothy came back, he gave a rather glowing report of a lot of amazing things that were taking place. And Timothy came back with some issues that they were facing and some questions that they had. One of the questions they had was concerning this matter. They knew that Jesus is returning. That was something that Paul kept talking about. He who is resurrected is going to come back and you want to live in light of his return. And they were and they're thinking, great, Jesus is coming back. But they had a problem. And that problem was this. They had people that were believers in Jesus that now had died. And they're like, are they going to miss out on the entire second coming? I mean, what happens to them? And really, this is a passage in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that he is going to address that subject. It's really more of a pastoral address than it is to set up a theology, but there is a lot of good theology that we can learn here. But can Christians have hope even when they're facing questions about death? Why can't they? Well, that's where this passage is so important. And I'll tell you that Christians can have hope because of, first of all, the reality of Christ's personal resurrection. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed or fail to understand or ignorant brethren about those who are asleep. Asleep is a euphemism that the Bible uses in the New Testament for death. Like when James 
writes about it in 226, for the body without the spirit is dead. That's the biblical definition. There is a separation of the soul from the body. And he says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So when the, what the Bible speaks of for a believer to die, it is as if they are asleep. Their body is asleep, not their soul, because their soul is going to be with Christ. The, the word cemetery comes from the Greek word quimeterion. And it, what it literally means is sleeping place. And what happens when a believer dies is that their soul is actually then taken to the presence of Jesus. I'm going to give you some different verses today. You might want to write this one down because you, it is going to come into play in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. You are going to have loved ones that are going to pass away. And if they are believers in Christ, this is going to be such great hope for you. It says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. What happens? To be absent from this body is to be literally at home, present with the Lord. Now, if you want to see the beauty of the reality of what it means to be in Christ, look at just, if you're in 1 Thessalonians 4, jump down to chapter 5, look at verses 9 and 10. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, like in this present state, or asleep, that you have passed from this life, we will live together where? And with who? With him. When we die, we are going to be with him. This is something that Jesus wanted his people to completely understand. In fact, we had an amazing scene Remember when Jesus was actually being crucified on the cross, there were two criminals that were crucified on either side of him. And even though they both were kind of ripping on Jesus and cursing and mocking him, one of them came to the realization that this Jesus is actually the Messiah. And remember there was this great scene of repentance while he himself is hanging on a cross and dying. And he tells Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He identifies who he is. And he says, remember me. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? He says it in Luke chapter 22, 23, verse 43. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so, friends, when you and I die, that's going to happen. That means if we're believing in Jesus, we're going to be in his presence. When you die, your soul doesn't, like, go to sleep. Your, your soul doesn't go to a, a place called purgatory, which was invented by the Catholics, which was the idea that your soul is going to go to a place where you're going to be punished, and you're going to pay for your sins, and then you will eventually be released to heaven. And of course, they also then kind of built upon that, and that, well, if you've you got some relatives on earth that would like to give some money to the church... Well, we can kind of cut some of that off, maybe 100 years, 1,000 years, depending upon your gift. And, of course, they use that to fund a lot of their building projects. Well, guess what? That's not in the Bible. You don't go into purgatory, but I can tell you a lot of people around the world think that's what's going to happen to them. Not in the Bible. That's not what the Scripture says. It says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You don't go into a spiritual coma. You don't go into what is called soul sleep. That is what taught, is taught by, like, the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, that's a cult that doesn't believe that Jesus is God. 
but they're going to probably leave something on your doorstep this week. And the Seventh-day Adventists actually believe that, that your soul just like goes into this unconscious state until the second coming. None of those things are true. What Paul writes about here, and like he said in Philippians, actually to die is gain. Paul said in Philippians, it is very much better to be at home with the Lord. And so the Bible doesn't teach that you're just annihilated. It doesn't teach that your soul sleeps. What it says is that if you believe, you are actually going to be with the Lord. And notice what he says, you are going to grieve. And I do not want to minimize this. When we have people that we love pass away from this life, there is a grief. There is a loss of an earthly relationship. But we grieve not as those who have no hope. But on the subject of grief, if you think like, well, if you're a Christian, you should never grieve because, of course, you know that your loved one, if they believe in Jesus, they're with him. Well, actually, think about Jesus. Remember when he stood before the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who had died, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus what? Wept. But Jesus knew that in just a few minutes, he's going to call Lazarus forth and rise him from the grave. And yet, grief is real. And there is a weeping. And yet, we weep and we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. The Greeks and the Romans, they feared death. It was like this tragic horror. And they they're kind of had the Larry King approach try to avoid at all costs because they believed it was horrific and they really weren't exactly sure what was going to happen but they saw it as the end of everything friends we need to have an honest moment here if you do not know jesus christ as truly your savior the scripture is emphatically clear that if you are separated from christ because you've rejected him You might be a nice little church person, you go to church, you might know a lot about Jesus, but you're not truly trusting him. Your condition is one that you have, according to like Ephesians 2.12, no hope, and you are without God in this world. That's why we've only got one message, and that is to turn from whatever sin you've engaged in, and whatever idols you're holding on to, and believe completely in Jesus. Because friends, that is the only way you have life, now and in eternity. You know, uh, sometimes when people pass away and they, uh, they say, well, he or she's in a better place. Are you sure? On what basis can you make that statement? Uh, I know from firsthand experience, going to funerals, I'm thinking of funerals in my family. And, and what happens after the funeral? Why? What I've witnessed in a lot of times in these situations where it's clear this person didn't believe in Christ, they had no hope. What do you do? You have to medicate yourself. And so they just just get inebriated. And they just have to drink and try to drown their sorrows. We pick drugs and we pick alcohol. We try to deaden that pain. Friends, it doesn't have to be that way. That's grieving with no hope. God wants you to have the certainty of hope, and you can if you have the certainty of truly knowing and trusting Jesus Christ. And this is our hope. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, it is the resurrection of Jesus that is both the proof and the promise. It is proof that Jesus truly, through his death, satisfied God's just wrath against sin, and it is a promise 
by virtue of his resurrection that you and I who believe we will have resurrected life. That's the issue. Do you believe? And so he rose again. It's proof and promise. And friends, it all comes down to the resurrection. You need to know something. If Jesus really didn't rise from the grave, I got news for you. You are wasting your time and your life believing in him. Because it comes down, if he did not really rise from the grave, that's just some sort of myth that's out there, we're in trouble. That's what Paul said. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are actually still in your sin. But like he said in verse 20, but Christ now has been raised from the grave. In fact, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, he said that Christ appeared to more than 500 others at one time. It, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the clearest facts of all history. Because it's the apex event. Christ paid for our sins. He has risen from the grave. And if you believe, you have life. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. Remember D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody said this. Remember that great evangelist? One day you're going to hear that D.L. Moody from Northfield, Massachusetts is dead. He said, don't you believe it. In that day, I will be more alive than I ever have been. Friends, that is the reality. That's why we have hope, because we have the personal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gary Habermas, he's an American historian and theologian, and has done a lot of work even debating on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And... At one point in his life, his, his 43-year-old wife, Debbie, thought she had the flu, goes to the doctor, finds out she's got stomach cancer, and she died four months later. During these long four months, he was really wrestling with this. God, why, why is my best friend dying? And he felt like God was asking him this question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Huh. Well, well, of course you did, God, but, but why is, is Debbie dying? Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Yes, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? And Gary went on to write, If Jesus has been raised, and he has, then I can trust that Debbie will be raised someday too. And that's what the New Testament promises. Friends, that's why we've got hope. Because we have the personal resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in him. Let me give you the second. The second reason why we have hope is that Christ has, promised, has a promised return and reunion for his people. Look at verse 14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and friends, that is the issue. If you're here and you're really not believing, today is your day of salvation. I would not risk it anymore. Believe now. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, look at this. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. God is going to bring the souls of all those who have believed in him, and he, they're going to come with Jesus. Think of it this way. Jesus, they can't come back with Jesus if they're not with him. They're coming back with him. They are presently with him. And 
I personally believe not only is it all of the believers in Christ who, from the time that the church began and to this present time, I actually think that every infant or every child that has died prematurely is with him, including those who do not have the intellectual capacity to believe. And I'll tell you why I believe this. Uh, first of all, you see like statements in 2 Samuel 12, 23, where David is interfacing with the death of his son. But what is required to actually have salvation? This is not a trick question. Anybody know? Okay, this is, we're in trouble. All right, you must believe, okay? You've got to believe in Jesus. But if you don't have the intellectual capacity to do so, does that mean, oh, you're out? No, I actually believe God is a God of grace, and he brings them in. And then he's going to come back. And he is going to come back with all of these souls. And just like it says, he is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Where are they at? They're with Jesus. They're in Jesus. Warren Wiersbe uh, saw a friend of his that his spouse had died. And he said, I hear that you lost your wife, and I want you to know I'm really sorry. And this man turned to him and said, no, I didn't lose her. You can't lose something when you know where it is, and I know where she is. See, my loved ones, when they've passed away, you know where they're at? They are with Jesus. we got God's word on the issue. And look at this, verse 15. When are these events going to occur? Well, you know what? We don't know. They can happen at any time. Nobody knows. I think it's wrong to set dates. I think you'll get yourself in a lot of trouble doing that. And the theologians refer to this as imminent. It can happen at any time. And look at verse 15 and following. He's going to start giving some details. What is this going to look like? He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, whether Paul got this as direct revelation a vision somehow got impressed upon his spirit however we do know that paul wrote under the inspiration of the holy spirit this is the the word of the lord this is what god wants his people to know that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep if you're worried that the people who have died who are believers that they're going to miss out on the second coming and all the glories of the kingdom you're wrong. They actually are like first in line. You see that? We who alive remain will not precede those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They're going to get to go first. And so he says, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Do you remember when Jesus was resurrected and he made all these appearances and he spoke with his disciples? Do you remember that he ascended into heaven 40 days later? It's all recorded in the book of Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 11, when they saw Jesus, he literally ascends into heaven, into the sky. And they're all just standing there like, and these angels appear and they said this, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? For this Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, he's going to come back in just the same way that you have seen him go to heaven. You saw him ascend? He is coming back. 
And that's exactly what's going to happen. Jesus is going to get up from the throne in which he sits in heaven. He is going to walk past that altar where all the the incense of the prayers of all the saints go, and they're continually before him. He is going to walk past those four living creatures that continually go around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. He is going to summon an archangel, and he is literally going to step through the curtain of the sky, and he's going to come back. And when he comes back, this is what's going to take place, verse 16. We don't know if this is going to be something in succession or it's going to be all simultaneous. But he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This is the word used for like a military commander in battle giving a cry of command. Or of a charioteer giving a cry of command to his horses that are in battle. How to, what he wants them to do. And so Jesus is going to give this shout, this cry of command. But what is he going to shout? Well, we don't know. Not in the text. But that was the question that was asked to Pastor Greg Fisher. He was teaching at the West African Bible College. And uh, one of the students asked this question. Uh, Sir, what is Jesus going to shout? And he's like, well... I, I don't know. And, you know, when you're in these situations and you always have these like, super smart kids and students in your classes and you're like, let's, let's keep moving. You don't know the answer. I'll try to get an answer, but uh, there's not one. So let's no. He goes, I'd like to know what you think. What do you think he's going to say? And so uh, Pastor Fisher is kind of thinking, you know, that these, these believers, I mean, they've, in the area that they live in Africa, all the bloodshed and the hostility, all of the hunger and the beggars that he saw, the, the brutality of their lives. He says, I, I don't know what Jesus will say, but maybe he'll say enough. Enough killing, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, and enough time. Maybe Jesus will say enough. Or, he says, or, or maybe, I don't know, but maybe Jesus will say what he said like we was before the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Remember? Remember what he said? He says, Lazarus, come forth. He had to actually say Lazarus' name because if he said, just come forth, maybe all the graves would have just emptied and they all would have come forth. Maybe, he said, maybe he's going to say, beloved, come forth. And there's literally this resurrection that will take place. There is going to be a shout from Jesus. And notice what else in verse 16. And there's this, there's this command, the voice of the archangel. Do you see that? With, there's going to be this utterance from this chief angel. That's what ark means. And we only know of one archangel in the Bible, and that's Michael. You find that from like Daniel chapter 10. He's the, the leader of the host of the armies of God. But he is going to perhaps give some sort of summon calling the angelic host now coming to actually not only bear witness, to be involved in this amazing and glorious event. We don't know a lot about angels. We only know what the scriptures give us. There's not a ton of information. Uh, like in Luke 16, though, Jesus actually told the situation about Lazarus and this rich man. Remember? And they both died. But it said of Lazarus in Luke 16, verse 22, this is what Jesus said. Now the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which was a figure of speech of speaking of paradise. And so... According to Jesus, 
Angels are involved in literally the transporting of the souls. And in the case of Lazarus, he's in a place of prominence. Abraham's bosom, he's, he's, this is a great place of honor. And so you have an angel that he's saying, this archangel, with the voice of the archangel, perhaps summoning the angels involved in this process, taking these souls and having this uniting that's going to take place right there in the enemy territory of the sky. And then finally, notice what he also he says in verse 16. And with the trumpet of God. This isn't the uh, like the final trumpet, the seventh trumpet that you find in the book of Revelation chapter 11, where it's the final tr- trumpet where God unleashes his judgment upon the earth. This is like the last trumpet for the church. Now, the Jewish people were very familiar with trumpets. They had the shofar, okay? And they, they were familiar with it. Like, remember when God gave the law at Mount Sinai? Do you know how he summoned his people? There was this, this preceded this, this blaring of the trumpet. And, you know, the shofar, that's that, like, ram's horn. It's da-da. Okay, you guys have seen the movie too, right? And that's how it works. Maybe you've actually seen somebody play it. It's only got two notes, okay? That's da-da. But the Jewish people, before their great festivals, extraordinary events, and also if they were under attack, it was their warning signal, a call to arms. Maybe that's the sound of that trumpet. The Romans, they used brass trumpets, and they would use it for the announcement of arrival of some significant person. But there is going to be this trumpet blast. You see that? And with the trumpet of God... And then I want you to see what's going to happen. You see that verse 16? And the dead in Christ, those who are asleep, they will rise first. Um, whoa, what, what exactly is going to happen? Uh, how, how can the dead be raised? So their souls are coming back, but I mean, think about it. Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. He's promised there's been a lot of believers in Christ who have died. Their bodies are like completely deteriorating. And, I, and I've thought about this, and I'm sure you've raised this question, like, what, what would happen? I mean, how is God going to get like all of these atoms and reconstruct all the DNA? I mean, how is that possible after 2,000 years? Well, I want you to know something. This does not mean that God is going to put all the elements of individual believers' bodies back together. It is resurrection not reconstruction it is resurrection not reconstruction this is kind of the argument that paul had in first corinthians 15 remember in like the beginning in verse 35 he said like your body when you die it's like a seed that is planted in the ground but from that seed shoots forth like a flower and you need to know something that the flower is actually not identical to the seed that was planted but what you have is continuity from the seed to the plant. You've got complete continuity. And that's what's going to happen. Our bodies will be buried. But literally, there's going to be a resurrection. And it's not going to be reconstruction. You might be going, what will these bodies be like? I mean, what will that be like? Well, I think that the bodies are going to be just like Jesus' resurrected bodies. They will be incorruptible, and immortal. They will be flesh and bones. Remember, when Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples, and they were like touching him, putting their fingers in his hands, hands at his side. Remember that? And they, they were like, whoa, how is this possible? We saw you dead. We knew where your grave was. We went there, and you are now alive. And he's like, 
guys, okay, give me your lunch. I'm going to eat it in front of you. I'm going to show you I am bodily resurrected. Well, we're going to have bodies like that. Let me give you some verses so you know this for certain. Like, for instance, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, listen to this, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We're going to have bodies that will be like his, but they are going to be ours. There will be continuity. There will be recognition. Let me give you another verse, a couple verses. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes, and you'll see this is such a theme of the New Testament. For our citizenship is in heaven. By the way, that is really good news on this election cycle, isn't it? Our citizenship is in heaven. Hallelujah. For which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? We're waiting for him. And listen to this, verse 21. Who will transform the body of our humble state. Okay, that's us. I mean, you guys are looking good and you did a good job with your hair and stuff. But we're humble, humble state. He's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power he has even to subject all things to himself. You see that? A literal transformation is going to take place. So these bodies, you know, sometimes like people are like, oh man, that's going to be great. I'm going to be like a superhero, right? I'm going to have awesome strength. I'm going to be able to leap over tall buildings. I'm going to have x-ray vision. I, I, I doubt it. We don't know. I mean... I hope I'm going to be stronger than I am right now, but I have no guarantees of that. But I, 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 that's not actually the things that would really get you most excited. When you talk about a resurrected body, the things that are most significant are this. Our bodies will be sin-free and sick-free. And friends, I'll tell you what. Just like when we were praying, we got so many people that are facing such serious health issues. Cancer, disease, I, I am tired of it. I, I do not like it. And I see just the devastating effects. Friends, I got news for all of us. One day, bodies that don't break down. Minds that, are not un, that will be unhindered by the lies and the lunacies of this world. That we're going to have hands that are going to be able to serve. Eyes that really will be able to behold the glory of God. And God is even going to give us hearts that will have the capacity to love even the greatest glory of God. And that is the day that we're waiting for. These are the bodies that we're going to be given. If you want more research on this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he actually describes these bodies, chapter 15, verse 42 through 44, he says there are going to be bodies with no more sickness and death. Why? Because they're imperishable. They will have no more shame because of sin, because they are raised in glory. No more frailty and temptation because they're raised in power and no more limits to the time-space sphere because this natural body is going to be given a spiritual body. And so he says in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain, that's us right now, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. What should happen if Jesus should come back this week or today? We do not know when he's coming back. He just says, I want you ready. What would happen to us who are alive? 
Well, this text answers that question. We will be caught up together with them. You see it? This amazing reunion with the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This word caught up, Greek, uh, uh, Greek word, is harpazo. The Latin translation of harpazo is rapio. It has the idea of being caught up, snatched up, maybe even violently, with lots of force. It's where we get the word rapture from. And what's literally going to take place, according to this verse, is that we are going to be, if we are alive at the coming of the Lord, Jesus is literally going to bring us up to him, and in a moment, we will be changed because we will meet the Lord in the air. That is what's going to take place. When it speaks of Jesus coming in the clouds, this is all very reminiscent of like Daniel's vision where the Son of Man comes in the clouds. Clouds speaking of the imagery of God's presence. And we'll meet the Lord in the air. And what will happen is our natural bodies will instantly be changed to these glorified bodies that will never wear out, that will be able to endure and enjoy eternity forever. If you want another text on that, like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, he actually describes this situation and what these bodies will look like. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's not a blink, but that's the time it takes for eye, your eye to catch light, like just a nanosecond. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable and the mortal must put on immortality friends this is not a problem for god who spoke the universe into existence this is not a problem for jesus who is resurrected from the dead and this is the promise remember john chapter 14 right before he goes to the cross in that upper room discourse he gathers his guys together and he tells them this. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And then listen to what he says next. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Because I always want you with me. That's what Jesus is saying. And friends, that's kind of what happens in Oriental, Oriental weddings today. Okay? The bridegroom, he's like, okay, going to get married. Better have a place. So he builds a house or he adds on to the parents. I would probably build my own, but whatever. He gets a place because about a year from now, he is going to take his new bride to their new place. All right? That's how it works. I mean, that's how it worked when I got married. That's not the picture right there. I mean, I had a semi-decent apartment in Wilsonville, Oregon, that I took my wife to, but it looked nothing like that at all, okay? Don't let you get confused. But you got to get it ready, best I can, right? And you bring your wife to it, right? She's like, oh man, I hope it gets better from this, right? But at least we got started, right? Actually, we, went, we uh, started out the apartment, it went worse, but eventually it got a little better. But that's kind of how it works. It works in Oriental weddings, and I can, friends, I can assure you, that's how it works with Jesus. He's the bridegroom. He's coming back for the bride, i.e., the church, you and I who believe. And he's going to take us to this home that he's prepared. And we are going to be with him. And so, friends, what we're talking about in this passage and in the passage in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, 
This all comes under that theological subject called eschatology, which deals with future things, how God works with individual people as well as groups of people. And you guys are sharp. I want you theologically astute. I want you to make sure that you understand what's taking place and what will take place. Let me give you the, the three major views regarding the timing of this. When will this rapture take place? Well, there's the pre-tribulationist view that states that what's going to take place is that Jesus, when he comes, in the air, comes to the earth in the air, he's not going to actually touch down, he will snatch up the believing saints, and it'll happen right before the seven years of tribulation that are detailed in the book of Revelation, following which he's going to then come down to the earth itself and establish his millennial kingdom like you see in Revelation 20. That's the pre-tribulationist view. Then there's the mid-tribulationist view that says, well, Jesus is going, there's going to start the initial tribulation, last about three and a half years. Then he's going to come down before it gets really bad, and he is going to then rapture his saints, three and a half years of God's tremendous judgment upon the earth, and then Jesus will set up his kingdom, he'll come down for the second coming. Mid-tribulationist view. And then there's the post-tribulationist view. And this is the idea that, well, Jesus coming, the gathering together of all the saints, and the establishment of the kingdom eternally is all going to kind of happen at once, and they just kind of mix it all together. I personally, for my years of study, uh, land in the pre-tribulationist camp. I think that's what God's going to do. Like, look at First Thessalonians 5.9. He already tells you God's not destined us for wrath. I think he's going to take us, and then he's going to bring judgment. It's kind of like what the U.S. government does. Uh, you start killing our people. You start uh, showing aggressive hostility. What we do is we tell our people that are living there, it's time to go. Pack your bags, get your teddy bear in the suitcase, and we're sending some military folks, and you are going to be evacuated. You're going to be raptured out of there. That's what we did in Kuwait. That's what we did in Yugoslavia. And I believe that's what God's going to do. He's going to take his people, and then judgment's going to begin. That's another reason why you ought to believe in Jesus today. And I think this is going to be pretty hard to miss. People ask, well, like, well the non-believers know about this? Yeah, they're pretty sharp. I think they're going to catch on real quick. This is going to be sudden and dramatic. And it's going to be like this. It's kind of like, you know those hot air balloons? That kind of, they have all those sandbags, and they, they kind of release those sandbags, and the hot air balloon rises? All the things that weigh us down on this earth, that drag us down, the heavy gravity of this world, the tears that are drawn from our eyes, the pain, the problems, the sickness, it's all, it's just going away. And we're going to be together with him. And what a reunion. You know, the entire church has never been all gathered together at once. But that will happen. Do you see that? We're going to be together with them. I mean, can you imagine what that'll be like? And we will see not only all of our family members that have preceded us and friends, but we're going to see a lot of friends from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They will be together, and we will know that they belong to the family of God, because why? They're going to have resurrected bodies like we are, and I think this is going to be glorious. But friends, the most important, and finally, the thing that is greatest, is that the one who we have uttered 10,000 prayers to, the one that we've seen thousands of songs to, the one who we have at times in our life just sensed the nearness of his presence, like he's right here, and the one that at times maybe we didn't sense his presence, but who is always with us because he never leaves us or forsakes us, Jesus. We will see him face to face. Friends, you need to know that our faith will one day be sight. And so that's why Paul writes in verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words.
Friends, what we know and believe about the future is meant to shape how we live in the present. Remember 1 John 3, 2, when he says, you know, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. Listen to verse, the next verse, verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that you believe, that you are waiting for Jesus, that you believe in this hope, if you believe, he says, you purify yourself just as he is pure. If you believe, man, you're fighting sin. You are setting aside anything that is defiling your mind, your soul, and your body. If it's wrong, if it's sin, if you believe and you got hope in Christ, man, you're setting those things aside because we have a hope. We've got the presence of Jesus. He's our confidence. He is how we're going to make it through in the difficulties of this life because he's the hope in the next. And so, friends, we're called to live in light of his return. And Jesus is coming back. That's how the Bible ends. If you haven't read the whole book yet, I encourage you to do so. I will give it away, though. Final verse, or second to last verse. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Jesus says this. Yes, I am coming quickly. And the response is, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, we've got a future we need not fear. You see, and as Christians... We always have hope because we are always with Christ.